who said, well, how about just, if we could just get out on time? <laughs> Early's out of the question. I'll work on on time. Um, well, good thing Marilyn's not here, huh? Let's hear a round of applause for the old pregnant lady. I mean, <laughs> that was, man. You know, somehow you'll get away with it. I'd get letters all week if I said that. That's a wonderful thought. Oh, well. Apparently, pardon me? Oh, 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 it wasn't Marilyn that you were impressed with. <laughs> Let's hear it for the old man. <laughs> oh, see, I got that all wrong. I'm sorry. Holy smokes. Doing that couple study through Genesis again, I see, huh? Um, apparently, there was uh, two small churches that were really having a tough time trying to survive, and since they were in close proximity to one another, what they decided to do was, after uh, much prayer and much uh, tribulation, if you can imagine, they thought the leaders of both churches should get together and, and try to come up with some way to unite these two different bodies to form one church fellowship because the first church was having a real tough time making ends meet as far as their bills were concerned. The second church had a problem as far as their facilities. They were leasing a school and the school, the lease was up and they weren't sure if they wanted to renew the lease. So what they thought to do is they combine these two churches and just form one church. Well, as you can imagine, two different churches trying to combine the form one church can present some difficulties, but the difficulties in this case were the first church was a Methodist church and the second church was a Presbyterian church. And so they have, uh, and since we're talking about worship, they have kind of different approaches toward worship. And uh, so they got together and, uh, you know, I guess the necessity of the moment caused them to do this, but they got together and they, they tried to work out their differences and they had just about all their differences worked out except for one difference in the area of worship. And in this particular area, it had to do with prayer. And so what they were arguing about was how the prayer, the model prayer that Jesus taught should be said. And so the first group, the Methodists, they were going through said that it, that they should it should remain and uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And the Presbyterians argued that it should be forgive us our debts. They had just about agreed on everything else except for this one particular area. And they could not come to an agreement no matter what. And there were fierce arguments over it, and they just decided that it wasn't the right thing to do. They weren't going to compromise. In this one area of worship, they were not going to compromise. And so the plan failed. What was interesting was there was a newspaper reporter that had caught wind of this particular meeting and thought it was kind of curious and it was actually funny. So they wrote down in the newspaper and the newspaper had this article and it said this. The Methodists decided to go back to their trespasses while the Presbyterians decided to go back to their debts. And uh, that's kind of the way that they summed it up. And, and we struggle with worship because it's, it's our form of worship, how we are to worship, that has divided church bodies throughout centuries. How should we sing? How should we pray? How should we conduct um, certain services? What should we do? The outward expression of the outward form of worship has divided churches for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so we struggle with that. We're not going to struggle with it here because we're not going to talk about how it should be expressed. What we've been talking throughout the series is why should we please God? We saw last time we got together that worship pleases God, but we're not sure of why it does or what should motivate us to do it. And so I kind of left you hanging last time on C.S. Lewis, who struggled with this whole concept of worship. And he said, just to remind you, he said, when I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after this belief had been given to me, 
I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise and worship God. Still more, I found a problem in the suggestion that God himself demanded to be worshipped. After all, we despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, of his intelligence, or his delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratifies such a demand. Thus a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and of his worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. He went on a little further and he got down to the punchline as far as the Psalms were concerned and he said, you know, and the mere quantity of praise seemed to count. It seems to matter to God somehow that seven times a day do I praise thee, O Lord. And it was extremely distressing to me. He said, so it made one think that what one least wanted to think. I can understand gratitude to God, reverence to Him, obedience to Him. I can understand all of those thoughts, but there's one thought I could never completely grasp and that was this perpetual eulogy or perpetual praising or worshiping of God. That I struggle with and have a problem with. Now, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this because I'll be honest with you, I have. I've wrestled with it the same way that he's wrestled with it. I don't understand God who needs to be re a God who needs to be reinforced or patted on the back and told he's doing a good job. And I struggle with that. There's something in my nature that says, if you tell me to do it, I'm not going to do it. But if you help me to understand why I should do it, then maybe I'll be motivated to do it. So don't tell me. And so what we've wrestled with for a long time is, you, I, we can come in here and I can say, this is what God says, just do it. But the chances of you doing it aren't that great. If I can explain to you somehow what the Bible has to say about worship in a way and illustrate it in such a way that as you leave here you can say, you know what, that makes sense. For the first time I've grasped and understood the concept of why I should worship God, then the chances of you doing so are much greater. So we're going to take a look at this whole thing of worship, and the question that we're going to ask ourselves as we go through this particular session is a very simple one, and that is the one that, that uh, C.S. Lewis was struggling with, and that was simply this, why should I worship? It's kind of like, give me some good reasons to worship God. I don't know of too many, I haven't heard of any, and just telling me to do it doesn't do it. So if you could please, just give me some reasons why it should be done. So I'll give you six biblical reasons why we should worship God. Six biblical reasons why we should worship. And as you take a look at each one of them, I hope by the time that you leave it, you're kind of like the VA commercial, you'll smack yourself in the head and say, ah, oh, if I'd have known that, I would have been doing this a long time ago. And so we'll go through it and take a look at it one at a time. So if you've got a piece of paper there, if you've got something to jot some notes down, I would recommend that you do it because I know you and you're not going to retain more than one or two of these. <laughs> so, and neither would I. That's why I write them down. Well, it also helps me to remember what I'm here to talk to you about. But um, if you've got something, you might want to jot them down because you won't remember them. You might remember some great stories, but you won't remember the point. Number one, <clears throat> let's go through it. Worship, as we're going to take a look at, is the profound realization of the holiness of God. Worship is the profound realization of the holiness of God. Now you're sitting there thinking, well, what does that mean? What does that mean, the profound realization of the holiness of God? I'm not sure I understand that. And basically, if you were to look at it, as far as forms of worship are concerned, if, if any of you have... I'm sure we do. We have varying backgrounds in here as far as uh, outward expressions of worship. And so basically what you can look at is there's two ends of the spectrum. You may come from a very formal background in which worship 
of God always seem to take place from a distance. It's kind of like the Bette Midler mentality of her understanding of God. That God is somehow out there in a distance. And He's watching over us from a distance. He's never really too close to us because, as you know, most public figures don't want to get too close to their people because then that aura, that, 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 um, that facade, so to speak, becomes penetrated. Because a public figure that gets too close to his constituency, they begin to see him or her for who she really or he is. And so there's this attitude about God that God somehow stands out here at a distance. We can't ever get too close to God because God doesn't really want us to know too much about him because if we find out about him, maybe we won't be too impressed anymore. And so we, we have this attitude about God. And it's no wonder God has such an identity crisis in our culture. Somehow we can't get close to God. Whatever he or she is or whatever it is according to our culture that we live in, God's out there doing whatever he or it or she's doing. And we're down here doing our thing, and we can never get too close to one another. That's the one kind of a ritualistic expression of worship that we come in and we go through the motions. Uh, we do whatever the particular church or denomination is set up to establish as far as worship is concerned. And we leave there never feeling any more closer to God than when we walked in. In fact, we feel even further distanced from Him because we begin to realize that we can't get close to Him. So here we are, we walk in, we want to get close to God, we can't get close to God, we go through some expression of worship, and we leave there feeling more frustrated because we don't know any more about God after we left than when we went in. And so God always is somebody, or it, it's way over here and it's gone. Now the other extreme to that is what we see in evangelical Christianity, where we look at the Bible, and the Bible teaches very, very clearly that we have a God who is a personal God. That we can know God as we know one another, and even more so, we can know Him in a relationship of a father and a child. That through Jesus Christ, we can have an intimate relationship with God who is personal to us, who wants to be known to us, who's actively involved in every area of our life. He's not watching over us from a distance, but the Holy Spirit of God actually indwells us as we've come to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God is no longer at a distance, but living within us. And that's why Paul struggled when he said, don't you realize yet that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That God actually indwells you who have put their faith and trust in Christ. So no longer is God impersonal God. He's a very personal God. And we saw in Romans 8 that Paul actually cried out, Daddy, Father, Abba, you know, Dad, I want to talk to you. We've got a relationship that isn't at a distance. And Hebrews says that we can go boldly before the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ. That we have an intimacy where we can go into the chamber of God, so to speak. We can sit down with Him in the library with a fire on and we can have a chat like nobody else in the world has the privilege of doing. And so there's that profound realization of the holiness of God. So we go from one extreme, it's an outward expression, to the other extreme that we're intimate and that danger with the intimacy is that familiarity breeds content. We can become so close and chummy chummy to God that we don't recognize His holiness and who He actually is. And so we need to go from one to the other. But on the other hand, as we look at this, Scripture teaches that the holiness of God as far as what it signifies, and if you were to paint like a broad brush maybe uh, of what holiness is, Holiness signifies the uniqueness, the sinlessness, the special position that God holds in each one of our lives. There is no one like God. And while we may have intimacy with Him, we can't separate the fact that there's nobody else like Him. 
And while we're in awe of him for who he is, we can never get to the point of saying we're so chummy chummy that we say, yo, God, you know, let's do this or that. And it's kind of that, you know, big, the, the dodger in the sky mentality. You know, and you hear that, oh, the man upstairs, the big guy in the sky, the big blue, you know, the dodger in the sky. And it's all funny stuff when we laugh when we hear Tommy Lasorda say things like that. But there's, but there's a danger that goes along with it. We've gotten so chummy chummy with God that we don't worship him because we don't realize who he is. And so rather than be chummy chummy with him, I think we need to take a good hard look at scripture because worship is the profound realization of the holiness of God. There is nobody else like God. He is sinless. He is perfect. He is the essence and the embodiment of all perfection. He is goodness indwelled. He is what we will be through Jesus Christ. We will be perfect through Him because He is perfect. And so from a Christian point of view, when it says, Be holy for I am holy, we can't be holy in essence because there is nothing good within us. But because of our relationship with Christ, we can become more Christ-like in our behavior and in our conduct that we become holy. And he says, be holy, for I am holy, but you can't be holy unless I am within you because I'm the embodiment of holiness. And that's where people get mistaken as far as the holiness of God. And in Exodus 24, we read where the Lord said to Moses, he said, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and you are to worship me from a distance. You are to be in awe of my presence. You are to understand who you're dealing with. I'm not like you, I'm different, I'm unique, I'm perfect, and you're not. And the fact that I am perfect should make you hesitate to become before me with your flippant and casual attitude and approach toward me. It's because you don't understand who I am. And in 1 Chronicles 16, 28 through 29, we see the same type of thing, where it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due His name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. See, we're to worship God not in the strength of our ability, not in the performance of our ritual, but we're to worship God in the splendor of his holiness. We worship him and who he is. And so as you go through it, it begins to make much more sense when we recognize how truly awesome God is. Isaiah saw that when he came before him. And it said in the year, in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, it says in the year that King Uzziah was off the screen. It says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah, as he was confronted with the awesome presence of God, what a spectacular sight to see God in his perfection and who he really is. And I think that when we catch a good glimpse of who God is, it takes away the flippant response that we have to worship. They were in awe. Every person who ever saw the glory of God was in awe of who they saw. He's not our buddy-buddy. He is our friend. Jesus said, you are my friends. And if you weren't my friends, I, w I wouldn't have told you all the things that I do. I don't hold any secrets from you. I tell you, you're my friend. You are my friend. We have a sense of intimacy. But never to the point where you can start to take our friendship for granted. Never to the point where you can forget who I am. Because I'm the Lord God Almighty. And there's no one like me. See, worship is the profound realization of the holiness of God. Do you want to know who worships God? People who realize who He is.
That's who worship God. No one else will because they haven't seen him for who he really is. And so the first thing that we look at is that worship's the profound, the profound realization of the holiness of God. And the second thing is that it's kind of, you go along with it and you say, well, you know, why should I do it? Sometimes being told to do it um, for some of us is probably the best approach because some of us are a little thicker than others. You know, we don't, we don't see that and go, oh, man, God is awesome. I never realized who he was. I'm going to worship him because of it when I see his presence. So some of us don't really catch, quite catch on to that. And there were a lot of people in the Old Testament who didn't. So what God did is he prescribed a ritual that went along with the temple and the tabernacle. He said, this is what you're to do. You're to come to the temple once a year. You're to offer certain sacrifices. You're to make the trip. You're to do it this way. You're to come and you're to honor these holy days, these, these uh, days that I have set aside to recognize that I'm in control of your life. You're to do it this way. There's an outward expression of worship. That is what we do. So if you, if you have to ask yourself a question, why should I worship God? Because he demands it. Because he commands it and he tells you to. And if you've got any uh, question about it, look at Revelation 22 for a second. Take out your Bibles. Revelation chapter 22. I want to show you something that you really can't tap dance around. I mean, you probably could try it, but it would be really awkward to do it. Revelation chapter 22, look at verse 6. We'll start there. And I want you to catch, the question is, why should I worship? Well, we worship because we realize the holiness of God, but we also worship because he tells us to. It says in verse 6, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw all of these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But the angel said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. You want to worship? You worship God. You see what his conclusion was? Don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant of yours and all those who heed the word of God. You know, you're in a worship, you worship God. And so worship in the Old Testament was a prescribed ritual, the tabernacle and the temple. We saw that Joseph and Mary went into the city to offer their, their offering up before God because they were told to do it according to Mosaic law. All throughout the Mosaic law, the, the people of God were to identify themselves as the people of God by their outward expression of worship. And so if you're going to identify yourself as a child of God, as one who loves the Lord, as one who wants to please God, then we're to do it by our outward expression of worshiping Him. But there's a difference between this prescribed ritual, as we'll see it, and in Exodus 33, if you want to take a look at this for a moment, it says, Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the tent. God had designated a place where He would meet with Moses and they would talk one-on-one. -on -one. And the particular place was a specific tent that was set aside for these meetings. And so as the cloud descended upon this tent, Moses would go into the tent and have a meeting with God, face to face, so to speak. And the people of God who saw the cloud descending upon the tent knew that the meeting was taking place and they were to stand at the entrance to their tents and they were to worship God at a prescribed time in a prescribed way that God had told them to do it. They were to honor God the way he said to honor them. They weren't to ask questions of why it should be done that way. They were just to do it. And that's exactly what went on. And you can see in 1 Samuel 1, 
13, 1-3 for a second. It says that year after year, this man, speaking of Elkanah, went up from his hometown to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hopni and Peneus, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. He would go up to the temple once a year because God demanded that they did it. He was commanded to do so according to the law, and they went up and they did it because God demanded or prescribed a certain form of worship that was to take place. And so as we go through this in our particular time, we take a look at that and go, well, why should I worship to personalize it? Well, you know what? I'm to worship because God tells me to worship Him. I'm to worship Him because He demands and He commands to be worshipped. And I, it rubs me wrong to some degree, but yet I realize that it, the examples are laid out all through Scripture. We worship God because He demands to be worshipped. He tells us to worship. And the good news is that we no longer worship Him from a distance, but we have a personal relationship with the God who created us that we could worship Him from a personal standpoint. See, in the book of Jeremiah, he told his prophet to write this. He said, you know what? There's a day that's coming. You know, all these days past, you've worshipped me from a distance. You've honored me from a distance. You've read the law. You've done it according to what you, have, uh, what, what you read. But there's a day coming that you will worship me from your heart. There's a day coming where the laws of God will be written upon their heart and they'll worship me from their heart. It won't be external, it'll be personal. It won't be a prescribed ritual, it will be because they, they want to do it. And we live in such a day. God does not demand us to fill churches each week as a prescribed ritual to offer up sacrifices to Him that do not please Him. God demands us to worship Him from our heart because we know who He is and what He's done for us. And you can't help but do it. And so as you take a look at that, that is the second reason that we're to worship because, hey, it was a prescribed ritual, but not necessarily just because of the Old Testament, but because if God's laws are written on your heart, it should be an outward expression of a desire that you have anyway. The third point maybe becomes a little more practical to some of us because it has to do with your world's view. And the world's view is very simple. Worship is the proper response of the believer to the goodness and salvation of God. Worship is the proper response of the believer to the goodness and the salvation of God. It's just the right thing to do. And the reason I say that is because it has a lot to do with your world view of what's going on around us. If you're a person who sees life as a series of circumstances that you're in control of and God is at a distance, He's not intimately involved in what's going on, then you won't give God praise, you won't worship Him for what He's doing in your life because you don't see Him at work in your life. All you see is you. If you're going to overcome it, you've got to overcome it. If, you, if you've got a promotion, it's because you worked hard. If it's because of this, it's because you got your education. If it's because of that, you've managed your money wisely. If it's because of whatever, it's because you've done something. If it's because you had children, it's because you jumped in the sack. You know, it, it's all of these things that you've done. Now, and, and that's a world's view. How do you see the world around you and the results of things that are going on in your life? And I, don't, I, I say that one because I got an illustration for it. So I wasn't just... <laughs> I do, I do. It, just, it, it ties into what we're talking about. But the, but the point is that worship is the proper response, and, and let me ex express it, of the believer, because God's people should see God's involvement in every area of life. Do you? Or is God just involved in the biggies and you take care of the little ones? Huh? problem I always had was that what's big and what's little? It's big if, if I can't handle it anymore. And it's little if I think I can resolve it. 
It's like, what are you, where do you draw the line? I mean, that's how most people are, right? And so what, what the Bible's saying is, are you one of God's people? Well, then you see God involved in every area of your life. And it just drives me crazy. You know, this, this airline accident last week, I, I cut an article out of the paper, and the headline was, Flight Attendants and Luck, Luck Saved Lives. <laughs> luck is the busiest guy that I've ever seen. <laughs> this guy's everywhere. Or gal. Or it. I mean, it's amazing to me. Luck is everywhere. I don't know what you see. What, I, mean, I mean, how many of you flippantly say things like, oh, man, oh, man, I sure was lucky. What a coincidence, huh? What a coinky-dinky, you know? <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's amazing. Let me give you an example of luck, okay? How do you see this? Here, here's what happened. This is a true story. Several years ago, I had met a uh, former colonel in the Israeli army, and he runs a travel agency out of Tel Aviv, which I'm sure isn't doing real well right now. <laughs> But, but he was a, a formal colonel, former mil military man, and I had an opportunity to speak to him not too long ago about some of the situation as these SCUD missiles have hit Tel Aviv. He said, you know what? He said, really, it was really interesting. He said, one particular incident took place. And, man, I thought of this, and this is this. What a perfect illustration. He said, one evening, the alarms went off, and the people in a certain sector of the town went down to a certain bunker that was designated for them. That's where they went the one particular evening. Nothing happened. A couple days later, the alarms went off again, and they went to go to the bunker. But for some unknown reason, and no one can quite figure it out, they didn't go to that bunker that they had went to two nights ago. They had gone to a different bunker, even though that wasn't what the plan was, but all the people went to a different bunker. One of the shells landed on their original bunker and totally destroyed it. They were on the other one, and not one of them had a scratch on them. And as we talked about it, he said, you know, he goes, the world looks at that and says, what a coincidence that is. He goes, but our nation of Israel has been one coincidence after another. He says, so we finally have got to the realization that it sure looks like God is behind us, doesn't it? And he is. And even though he's never put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he still recognizes the God of Israel as a God who loves his people. And his world's view of what's going on isn't a coincidence, and it isn't luck, and it isn't happenstance. It isn't any of those things. It's that, you know why no one died? Because God saved our people. And he continues to do so because he loves us. And his hand is on our lives. And he is. You know, when I thought about that, and I thought, you know, God help us sometime to understand that God's hand is upon our lives as those who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That our lives are not a coincidence. Our lives are not a matter of luck and a matter of hard work and a matter of us taking control of certain situations. But the truth of the matter is that God is intimately involved in the lives of each one of us. And God, help us to never again to say that it's luck, that it was coincidence, that it was being in the right place at the right time, that it was our education or our abilities or whatever it is that has uh, blessed you the way that you saw you were blessed. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because I'm, I don't want to get to the point one day where I stand before God and say, hey, Chuck, by the way, I never went by the nickname luck, just to let you know. <laughs> never went by luck. Never went by coincidence. I'm Jehovah God. So if you want to give credit to where it's due, then you give credit to the God who made you. It's not luck. It is for those who don't know Him, but not for us who claim to be His children. And you know what? Let me give you a couple examples quickly of the fact that it's not luck. This is God's people and how they looked at the world around them. 
This is Eleazar, who was a servant of, of, uh, of Abraham. And it says, in, and uh, he went to look for a bride for Isaac. He traveled 500 miles into an area that he had never been to meet with people that he had never talked to, he had never come in contact with any time in his life. He had got to this particular area, and one of the gals that came out to address him, um, basically this was the confrontation that took place. After 500 miles of not knowing where he was going, not really knowing what he was looking for, didn't really know what he was going to find when he got there, didn't know who God had set up to do it. All he knew was that God had promised him that he'd find a, a wife for Isaac and just to send him out and go get her. So this is the guy. This is the mission. So as it said, she added, uh, you know, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. <laughs> the man was floored. The man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. God made him a promise, and he's fulfilling it like he always does. And he was in awe of the promises of God. And he bowed down and worshipped God because of it. It says, As for me, the Lord has led me on a journey to the house of my master's relatives. Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah. Take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord God and worshipped him. He met his needs, fulfilled his promise. And you know what? It wasn't, man, was I lucky I made a left on that road instead of a right. And man, I'm glad the guy at the gas station told me which direction to go. And isn't it amazing how all these things are working out? Do -do 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 -do. No, he said, man, I am just in awe of what God can do. He says he'll take care of me. He's taking care of me. He made me promises. He's fulfilling them every time. I'm in awe of what he's doing. And he bowed down and worshiped God because he worships the proper response of the people of God as God meets their needs. Let me just skip a couple here and get to the one that will get me out of trouble. Here we go. It's going to take more than one to get me out of trouble, right? Okay, 1 Samuel 1, 19, and then 26 through 28 is the story of Hannah and, uh, and Elkanah. And it says, early next morning they rose and they worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. If you remember the story, she had been praying that God would give her a child. She cried before Eli, the high priest, and said, I am barren, I can't have any kids. And uh, to make a long story short, Ellie promised her that she would have a child. So anyway, they went back home to do their part of what they needed to do. And so Elkanah lay with, his wife, with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child. The Lord has granted me what I asked him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord God there. You see that? Now, let me just tell you something. You, you see, now, she had choices to make here. We finally did it. We finally conceived and had a child. Man, all the trips to the doctor, all the fertility drugs, all the magazines I read, all that, finally did it, finally paid off. Boy, it worked. Or she could say, you know what? I still see conception as a miracle of God. And regardless of how many magazines I read and trips to the doctors we took and how many times... We did it. And all these things, I still see children are a gift from God. I see children are a blessing from God. And I still see that unless God blesses us, we can't create life. That's what I see. And that's what the Bible teaches. It just depends on your world's view. If you're a child of God and you believe God's actively involved in everything, you realize you can't even conceive and have children without God's blessing. Because you can't create life. Not your child. Oh, look, we're having a baby. Yeah, you're having God's baby. 
You're having a child that God has given you. It's a blessing of God. You didn't do it. You may think you worked hard at it, but unless God opened that womb up so you can conceive, you didn't do anything. See how it works? And yet we have a responsibility too to do what we need to do in this whole process, and that's where the real confusion lies. But as far as worship is concerned, worship is a proper response to the goodness and salvation of God. And you know, John the Apostle saw it, and he said, you know, and as we get a glimpse of the future, he looked at it and said, in Revelation 7, 9 through 12, After this I looked, and there before me is a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they all fell down on their faces and they worshipped before the throne of God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And he saw the future. And you know what he realized? That he didn't get there on his own. None of us got there on our own. On our own. And if it wasn't for the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who died, died for our sins, that we could accept him as our provision to take our sin away. We would never be at that picture in the future that he saw, and he realized it, and he was in awe of him, and he said, you know what, salvation is all of God. C.S. Lewis said it best when he said, you know, when I was drawing near to belief in God, no, no, let me change that. When God had given me the, the opportunity to respond and believe, I can't even believe in God unless he opens my ears and my eyes to hear him and to see his presence. We can't sell people on Jesus Christ. We can't persuade people to put their faith and trust in Christ because it's all a work of God. God opens their ears. God opens their eyes. God saves them. God chooses them. And God delivers them to the end. And when we look at heaven and we see where we're at, we're going to realize for the first time that we got there because of Jesus Christ and not because of anything we ever did. And when we finally realize that, you know what we're going to do? We're going to fall on our face like everybody else and we're going to be as excited as heck to be there and we're going to worship and praise God. You know what? Before I was a Christian, the most boring thing I could ever think of was spending eternity singing and praising and worshiping God. Excuse me, I'd rather go where you can shoot, pull, and have a beer. What? Think about it. That is, I mean, you tell somebody who doesn't know the Lord, you say, hey, guess what? We're going to sit around for eternity. We're going to sing and praise and worship God. Doesn't that sound like a big time fun? And they look at you like, mm, I don't think so. And you know why? Because it's not. Because worship becomes an expression of something that's already happened within us. You can't fake worship. When you see as John saw what God has done and every multitude a great multitude, no one can count, from every nation, every tribe, every people all over the world will see the work of God and His Spirit throughout the surface of the earth, bringing all that He has chosen to Himself. And we see what a marvelous thing it is that God's going to do. And we see all the languages and all the people and everything that's there. We're going to be in awe of God, just as John was, and all the elders that are around the throne of God, and they worshiped Him, and I can't wait to see it. Because I can't wait to be one of them. What a great picture of what God has done. But you can't fake worship. There is nothing to look forward to if you're not a believer. Worship will bore you to death. Worship's like playing church to someone who's never put their faith and trust in Christ. And there's nothing fun about going to church. You see what the problem is? It depends on what your life's view is, what your world's view is. Do you see God actively involved in every of your life? Then you can't help but praise Him and worship Him. Thank you, Jesus, for everything you're doing. Thank you, Lord. Can't wait to tell you thanks. But a lot of us think that we're a little better than we really are. 
Because what happens is worship is also the personal recognition of our unworthiness and humility before God. When you see God for who He is, then you don't think a whole lot about yourself after that confrontation. There are a lot of egomaniac, prideful people walking the face of the earth saying, I'll never bow my knee to anybody, including God if it exists. But worship is a personal recognition of our humility and unworthiness before God. See, that's what Joshua saw. It says in Joshua 5, 13 through 15, it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he said, Neither. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have come now. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The commander of the army of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, and we believe that's true because Joshua worshipped him. And he wasn't an angel because an angel, we already clearly see that an angel will not accept the worship of men, that only God should be worshipped. And so Joshua bowed down and worshipped him when it was in awe of his presence. And the angel of the Lord said, Remove your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. And he was in awe. You know what Isaiah did when he was before the throne of God? The picture that we just saw before? When he saw the presence and the holiness of God, when he saw this awesome appearance of the throne of God, he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my people are unclean before the sight of God. So you know what worship does? is Worship helps us to recognize that we're not worth anything outside of the love and the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. We have no stand. We have no ground to stand upon. We have no pride that, that's at our disposal that we can somehow stand face to face with God and ask Him to explain Himself to us. Worship's the personal recognition that, you know what? I'm nothing. I'm but dust for the fact that God breathed life into, my, into, my, into this frame that He built. I'm nothing, but God gave me a spirit that'll live for eternity. I'm no one. I don't know who you are, but I know who I am. I got a real healthy, healthy understanding of who I am. You know what I am? I'm nothing. And I know the psychologists in America would cringe to hear that statement. You got to have a better self-esteem than that shark. You'll never get anywhere in life with that kind of attitude. You've got to have a healthy self-esteem. i got the healthiest self-esteem in the world because it's the self-esteem and the, and the image that God tells us that we are. It says, you're nothing outside of me. But in Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. You're a son of the King. And you have an inheritance that's waiting for you. And you're going to love what I got for you. You have access to all the privileges and the pleasures of heaven at my disposal. But that's only because of Jesus, not because of who you are. You're right, Chuck. You've got a pretty accurate assessment of self. You're nothing outside of me. And you know what? With that healthy image, I'm going to go a long way. I'm going all the way to heaven. Do not, Tasco, do not stop for 200 bucks. I can't wait to get there. See, you know what? And that's what it really becomes because even Job understood it. Joshua understood it. Job in 120 and 22 says, you know what? At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then he fell down to the ground and he worshiped God after he lost everything. Didn't really matter because it wasn't his to begin with. God gave it to him. Guess that goes along with his worldview, huh? He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. God gave it to him. If God decides to take it, he took it. 
He didn't have a problem with his self-esteem being shattered by all this because he knew he wasn't in control of his life. God was. So as he worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord's taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And I'm going to worship him. And all this, Job did not sin by charging God with any wrongdoing. Job had a real healthy picture of who God was. God is in control. And he had a real healthy self-esteem because he knew he was nothing in light of who God is. Centurion servant who had a, a centurion uh, that had a sick slave, if you remember the story, sent out his servants to see Jesus and said, Tell Jesus this, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but if you only say the word, my servant will be healed. That's what he said. I'm not worry, worthy for you to come into the presence of my household, and I know better than anybody because I'm a centurion, I'm a soldier, and I'm a man of faith, and I know that if I tell my men to do something, they'll do it, and I know that I asked you to do it. If you say it'll be done, it'll be done. And Jesus marveled at the faith, and he said no man in Israel had any greater faith than this because this man had a healthy understanding of who he wasn't. Even though he had position, he had power, he had privilege as a centurion, he was responsible, he was an authority, he still knew he was nothing compared to who God is. And he said, I'm not worthy, God, for you to come into my presence. You just say the word, my servant's going to be healed. And I know that's for, for sure. And at that very moment, Jesus healed his servant. See, Job recognized it, and later in Job 42, he said this, You know what? I heard about you, God, but for the first time in my life, I finally saw who you really were. And when I did, I got down on my knees and asked you to forgive me for my attitude, for my pride, for my cockiness, for my arrogance, and asking you to answer me. How stupid. I repent and I retract in dust and ashes. I heard about you. Now I finally have seen you. That's what we need to see. Maybe that's why I don't worship God anymore, because we don't see him for who he really is. We're looking at ourselves in a world that promotes that you're something special. Well, you're nothing special. So don't take notes. Just remember that. You're nothing special. And the only thing that's special about you is if you've come to know Jesus Christ, then you're special. But until that, you're nothing, so don't get excited about yourself. Number five, worship is the powerful result of those who know the greatness and the power of God. And that's what we've really been talking about this whole time. You see, it's the powerful result of those who know the greatness and power of God. You and I can't get excited about worship until you know the greatness and experience the power of God in your life. A changed heart, a changed life will excite you to worship God. It is a powerful result. Think about it. Think about how powerful it is when you can take somebody who's in rebellion against God, who's somebody who says, I could never worship God. Somebody says, I'll never bow my knee before anyone. Someone says, I can't go to heaven because it sounds like a boring place to me. I'd rather go to hell with all my buddies. Someone that could say that at one time in their life and then all of a sudden be over here saying, I can't wait to worship and praise God. I praise Him every day in my life. I worship Him for who He is and what He's done. What is the, how do you get from here to here? A powerful result of a transformed life that has come to know the goodness of God. See, that's really the only way you can do it. You can't worship God until you've come to feel the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then you can worship Him. Psalm 22, 27, 29 says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. There's nothing we can do in and of our own power, but God is the one who can save us. And he says, you know what? And, I can't, and I'll worship him because of it. All through the book of Revelation, we see the same thing, where we look into the future and we see that it's God who's been the one who has saved us. In Revelation 19, 1 through 4, once again we see this, as John writes, And after this, I heard 
what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah salvation and glory and power belong to our God for a true and just are his judgments he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries he has avenged on her the blood of his servants and again they shouted hallelujah the smoke from her goes up forever and ever and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried out amen hallelujah and you know why they did it because God defeated all of his enemies the powerful result of the goodness of God. We just see it. God is going to win. Don't get too concerned about it. You're on the right side. You put your faith and trust in Christ, you're on the winner's side. The end of the story has already been given to us so we know what we have to look forward to. God is going to win. And while evil seems to be overruling this earth, there is a day coming where Jesus Christ will take his stand upon this earth and all evil will be in subjection to him. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. To those who are on the earth, to those who are in heaven, to those who are in hell, everyone's going to kneel down and worship God because he is just and deserves it and he is God Almighty. See, that's a powerful result. That is a powerful result that every person that's ever been created in the history of the world will one day kneel down before Jesus Christ and worship Him as God. Doesn't get much more powerful than that. And the last thing is this. That worship is the precious relationship of the believer to God that makes everything else, all other pursuits secondary and gives meaning and purpose to life. That's really what worship is. It is a precious relationship. It is a privilege for you and I to consider ourselves as a child of God. It is a privilege to be able to worship God. It's a privilege to have a desire to worship God because only God gives us that desire. It's a special relationship that no one in this world has. And in Jesus said in John 4, 23 and 24, He says, you know what? Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Not those who do it externally, not those who are doing it for public demonstration or for public show, but those who are doing it because of a right relationship with God through Christ. Those who worship God because of a relationship that's from the heart. That's what Jesus was talking about. There's a day coming and now is where the true worshipers of God will worship Him, He says, and they must worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. You know, and I thought about that because really what it boils down to is Jesus Christ said this. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And that no man could come unto the Father but through me. See, no person could ever worship God the way God deserves to be worshipped unless they've come to a right relationship with Jesus Christ because He is the truth. And see, a true worshiper of God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the only way you can do that in truth is if you've come to know Christ. That you've accepted Him. You put your faith and your trust in Him. And when you do that, there is a relationship there that goes beyond any earthly relationship that you'll ever have. There is a relationship between father and child. There is a relationship of privilege and of responsibility as well. There's a relationship that Jesus Christ opens that no man can ever open on his own. We can't come to God with our own form of worship. And while men have tried to do it for centuries by outward ritualistic form, Jesus knows the heart of every one of us. And while we may worship Him and we may sing songs about Him, we may go to church and we may do all these things, if we don't have a right relationship with Him through Christ, He'll say, Be gone, for I never knew you. Even though you sang the hymns and you did the things that your church told you to do, I never knew who you were. 
And you knew you never knew me because every time you left there, you felt empty that there was something missing. You knew it, and I told you, and I tried to bring people in your life who would confront you with it. But you were, you were more satisfied with the ritual and the form of worship than you were with coming to know me in a personal way. You were more afraid to step out in faith, to put your faith and trust in me, and you stayed with the ritual of whatever it was that you were brought up to believe in. And the fear kept you from coming to know me. Let me just close with C.S. Lewis, because C.S. Lewis really... Oh, let me, let me do this too, and I'll leave this up there while I close this. But C.S. Lewis, as he struggled with this, came to a great conclusion. Much better conclusion than I could come up with, so I'll use his. And let, let, me, let me just... Please pay attention to this, because if, if, if you don't, you're, you're missing something that'll be profound in your life. So listen to this as it ties together. And remember what his initial struggle was. I don't like to be told to worship God, and I won't do so because someone tells me. And I really have a problem with the God who demands to be worshipped. That bothers me too. So as we've gone through all this and we've seen six biblical reasons why, now let's tie it together and see what his conclusion was of something that he really he didn't think about until now. And I'll bet you most of us haven't either. He said, the most obvious fact about worship, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. And I'm afraid it's escaped most of us as well. He said, I always thought of worship in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I have never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, praise of wine, dishes, actors, cars, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced people on earth praise the most. While the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise the least. The good critics found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrowed the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy and the unaffected man, even if luxuriously brought up and widely experienced in good cookery, could praise a very modest meal. The dyspeptic and the snob found fault with everything. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Nor does it cease to be so when, through lack of skill, the forms of its expression are very uncouth or even ridiculous. Heaven knows many poems of praise addressed to an earthly beloved or as bad as our bad hymns, and an anthology of love poems for public and perpetual use would probably be as sore a trial to literary taste as hymns, ancient and modern. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, they so spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that that is magnificent? He said the psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care most about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do the most. It says what indeed we can't help doing about everything else that we find of value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is an appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is finally expressed. 
said it is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley and not be able to tell anybody what a gorgeous sight they have seen. And then to have to keep silent because the people with you care, the people because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. To say that you you come across a beautiful valley and not be able to express it because the people who are around you would rather see something as a tin can in a ditch. Said, so, you know, it doesn't make any sense not to still praise it nonetheless. This is so even with our expressions are inadequate. Says so the worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. And then he goes on and he says, you know what? says, this does not mean, as it so dismally suggests, that worship is like being, quote, in church. It says, for our services, both in their conduct and in their power to participate, are merely attempts at worship, never fully successful, often 99.9% .9 failures, sometimes total failures. We are not writers, but pupils in the writing school. For most of us, fall, the falls and the bruises, the aching muscles and severity of exercise far outweigh those few moments in which we were, to our astonishment, actually galloping without terror and without disaster. Said, so to see what the doctrine really means, we must suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God, drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by, and that which we delight with, far from remaining pent up within ourselves is incommunicable, hence hardly tolerable. Bliss flows out from an incessantly, again, and effortless, and perfect expression, our joy no more separable from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself that the brightness of mirror receives. This guy's excited. He doesn't even have a comma or a period in a sentence. He says, the Scotch Catechism says this, that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these things are the same. To fully to enjoy is to glorify. And in commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us also to enjoy Him. And I guess the point is this. If you enjoy Him, if you enjoy Him, if you love Him, as you love your spouse, as you love your child, as you love a friend, then you can't help but to express that love to Him. See, and that is worship. And that is praise. And you know what? Only people that have fallen in love with the Savior can truly worship God. You don't have to do it, and you can't do it unless you really want to do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for this uh, rather direct message on who you are. And as C.S. Lewis writes, it becomes obvious to me as well that the only way that I could truly worship you is by loving you. Falling in love totally with you, being dissolved within your presence. And God, I can't help but worship and praise you because I've come to know your son, Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness that he offers and the hope for eternal life that he gave me the moment I put my faith and trust in him. And yet I realize that I can't even put my faith and trust in him unless you, of course, open my eyes and ears to hear it. And I just thank you for choosing me. And I also reminded how unworthy that I am that you've done so. God, may I always praise you with my lips. May I always sing a glorious chorus that is a delightful sound to your ears as I recognize finally who you really are, that I can realize your holiness, that I can realize your presence and your person, and I can realize also that you're the victor of all battles that this world will ever see, that one day you will stand supreme on the face of this earth, and that there will be no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more tears, no more weeping. And as we look ahead to that wonderful picture, that scene in heaven, we can't help it now. Worship you for what lies ahead for each one of us who have put our faith and trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we just thank you and we praise you. Although we feel inadequate, you just know it's an expression of our love in our heart. 
And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.